Well, I invite you to turn now to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 today as we examine the seventh day of creation. Uh, When we get to verse 4 of chapter 2, it very clearly begins a new section, and we'll look at that next time. And then as we get to verse 5, it backs up a bit to the sixth day and fills in some of the details uh, relating to the creation of man and woman and the Garden of Eden and so on. Um, So today we're just going to cover verses 1 to 3 and uh, wrap up the days of creation here. So let's read Genesis chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In these words, we have, on the one hand, something of a relatively straightforward conclusion to the introductory section of Genesis. In verse 1, we're told that God finished his creation of the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. Everything on the earth, everything in the sky, everything was done. These were completed at the end of day 6. And then as the seventh day comes, we are told that God rested on it in verse 2. And then in verse 3, we see that he blessed that day and then declared it to be holy. And so creation week now is done. And we are set to move on to the next section to continue on with the narrative of the book of Genesis. But on the other hand, if we inquire a little more carefully about the significance of these verses and the significance of God resting, and then the significance of him blessing the seventh day and declaring it to be holy or sanctifying it, although answers may not be immediately obvious, there is, in fact, a lot here for us to consider, especially in light of what later scripture, later revelation teaches us and has to say about rest, about the Sabbath, and about days that are holy. There's every reason, I would submit to you then, to see that there is much abiding significance to what we read in these verses. And so what is that significance? Well, in summary, this is really a summary of the the sermon today, God's entrance into his rest and his blessing and sanctifying of the seventh day reveal the end for which man was created and sets the pattern for man's weekly work and Sabbath rest. So that's it. That's the summary, and we're just going to work our way through that. So number one, two main points to the outline. Number one, God's seventh-day rest reveals the end for which man was created, namely to enter into an eternal rest with God. So, As we said, verse 1, we're told that God's creative work was done. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So this is a summary statement of what we have already seen in in chapter 1. All the previous work described in the heavens above, creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the creation on the earth below with 
various plants and animals and creation of man, all of this was now completed. It was finished. The sixth day is ended, that work is done, and now we have the seventh day in which we're told God rested. So verse 2 says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. If we consider what we've already seen about God as the creator, this statement that God rested, if it wasn't so familiar to us, it might seem a little bit odd if we consider everything we've said about this God who created. Could it be that the one who spoke everything into existence, who is greater than everything we can lay eyes on, that is greater than the universe itself, could it be that such a God would really tire out from his labor? Of course, the answer is no. This is, this is not what this is saying. Uh, I think you think of probably the familiar words to many of you from Isaiah 40, where it says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Very clearly, very, very straightforwardly there, he does not wear out as you and I do. And so this rest that we see in Genesis chapter 2 is not a rest due to weariness of any sort on God's behalf. But it is properly understood to be a rest of accomplishment. That is, God rested not from tiredness, but because he was done, because his task was completed. He had accomplished what he set out to do in creating. In fact, the word for rest here carries a sense of ceasing, of stopping something. He ceased from his labor of creation. Now, this does not mean, we should not think that this means that God becomes totally and completely inactive uh, in the world, and he has nothing more to do with it. Uh, God ceased his creation work here, but of course we know he continues to go about his providence. He, he upholds that which he has created in his work of providence. He maintains everything. And so this is marking out the completion of God's creation and his satisfaction with it. But again, there is more to this concept of rest than merely informing us that God had finished creation. Uh, in verse 1, it already told us that God was finished. And so verse 2 is surely more than just simply a repetition of the idea that God was done. And so as we look then to the rest of the Bible to see if it helps shed any light on this, on what's going on, on how we should think of God's rest here, we do find this idea of rest and of God's rest specifically, we find that this is spoken of later on in a number of places. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 to 11, uh, the promised land of Canaan there is portrayed to Israel and is spoken of as a land of rest. So here's what it says, Deuteronomy 12, 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest 
from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. So here, Canaan is spoken of as a place where God would give his people rest, rest from all their enemies. This would be a land of safety. God would watch out for them. And of course, we know under Joshua, God did indeed give them that promised land. He brought them through the Jordan and into this land of promise. Then in Psalm 95, verse 7, this is written years later. Hebrews tells us David is the author of this psalm. This is after the people had entered into that promised land that God had given to them. We read this. Today, David writes to the people of Israel, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's obviously God speaking through David the prophet. They shall not enter my rest. That was, that was the punishment the wilderness generation experienced. Again, the promised land there is spoken of by God as rest. In particular, he calls it my rest. And the wilderness generation was not permitted entrance into it. And as David writes that Psalm 95, he is likewise imploring the people in his own day, today, it says, do not harden your hearts like the wilderness generation, lest the people in David's time also likewise be unable to enter into God's rest. So in David's day, Psalm 95 shows that there is an even greater rest than the promised land that God gave to Israel. David's audience, those who would have originally read Psalm 95, were in the promised land. They had come in. They were in that land of rest. And yet there was a risk of them not entering into God's rest. There's clearly another and greater rest. I think this reveals that the promised land was a picture. It was a type of a greater rest that individuals were to enter into by faith. Yes, the people received the land of Canaan, but there was an ultimate greater rest still to come that the people of God were being stirred up to. And I think this is precisely what the writer of Hebrews says about these very things. We read Hebrews 3 and 4 earlier. There, he is quoting from Psalm 95. If the book of Hebrews is a sermon, Psalm 95 is one of the key texts in it. And so in Hebrews 3 and 4, it reveals that all along there was this greater rest that awaited the people of God, which is entered into by faith. And specifically now, it is entered into by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the writer there, as we read, says, we who have believed in Christ, have entered that rest. We enter it now by faith in Christ. And yet, it's also clear in Hebrews and, of course, experience that we do not yet have the full experience of our rest either, as we look forward to that at a future time. And so Hebrews exhorts us 
to hold fast to our original confidence to the end. In chapter 3, verse 14. And then it tells us also to strive to enter that rest in chapter 4 by keeping faith in our great high priest. So we enter into that rest already by faith in Christ Jesus, and we await the full experience of that eternal rest, which is not yet ours, but will be in the last days. So again, this is part of that we already experience it in part, but not yet in its fullness. And if we were to jump ahead to the very end of the Bible, we find at the end of Revelation, the glorified new creation, new heavens and new earth, in which God's people are indeed perfectly at rest with him. And it is not even simply a return to the Garden of Eden in which it, man might still sin. It is a glorified Eden. All earthly work and striving over no more unclean thing will ever enter that new creation. It is indeed a place of eternal rest. God with his redeemed people. And so coming back now to Genesis chapter 2. What I suggest is that the rest that God entered into on the seventh day signifies that eternal rest that man was to enter into as well. The thing that we might call glory. And Hebrews 4 even connects the dots very directly to Genesis chapter 2, saying, For if Joshua had given them rest, if he had given Israel that true ultimate rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on in Psalm 95. So then there remains today a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Adam, and we'll look at this more in future weeks, but Adam had entrance into this glory, entrance into God's eternal rest laid before him. And was to bring his posterity into this by working and keeping the garden. But he, of course, as we know, failed. And instead brought about the curse of sin upon all of creation and all of man. He represented man and he brought death upon us all. And it is the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and brings sinners into God's ultimate eternal rest. And so, a primary application here is to see that God's rest is a rest that is to be entered into and enjoyed by man. This is a, a, a kindness of God and a, a very benevolent thing for him to do. To welcome creatures into his eternal rest. And to make this even a purpose for which we are created. But of course, we must also see and understand and know that sin keeps us from entrance into that rest. Adam was barred from the garden and we all died with him and in him. And we likewise stand guilty before God, not only as Adam's offspring, but as those who in our own actions, in our own minds, in our own thinking have sinned and sinned many times and sinned very grievously violating God's laws. 
It is Christ who redeems sinners from this and brings us into God's eternal rest. We rest now in Christ's saving work. Certainly our own works and efforts contribute nothing to our justification. They are in no way part of the grounds of our salvation. Christ has done all the work that was needed. We are graciously pardoned by faith in him. And so first and foremost, we are reminded of the need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess our sins to God, to repent of our sins, to believe in Christ Jesus, to trust him that he saves and brings us into to God's rest. And then as those who are indeed trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this also calls us, I think, to fix our eyes on the eternal rest that awaits us at the end of this life of struggle. Do you think of eternity in that way? Do you think of it as rest, as an eternal rest? It is a, it is a wonderful thought, a glorious way to consider eternity with our God as rest. Even as those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh, in our own works to justify us, we know even with that great news in which we trust and we do experience a measure of rest and peace in this day, life continues on and continues to be difficult. There is that rest in Christ now, but we still have Christian duties to attend to. We still have responsibilities and callings upon us in which we are to be diligent. We are still those who battle with our own flesh, with Satan and with the world. Moreover, death itself is a reality that still awaits us if the Lord delays his return. These are difficult things. These are weighty matters. They weigh upon us. They're hard. They're exhausting often. And yet at the end of all of this, for the Lord's people, is the full experience of entering into God's eternal rest. Be reminded of this. Put your hope in this. Set your eyes upon that. These troubles we face are, are not worth comparing to that eternal weight of glory. And so God's seventh day rest reveals the end for which man was created, namely to enter into God's eternal rest with him. And secondly, second point of the outline, God's blessing and sanctifying of the seventh day sets the pattern for man's weekly work and Sabbath rest. His blessing and sanctifying of the seventh day sets the pattern for man's weekly work and Sabbath rest. One of the big questions about these verses is whether God's resting and then blessing the seventh day and declaring it holy, if these are indeed meant to be something that we are to mimic. Is this meant to be a precedent for man to follow? And obviously the way I'm worded this point, I'm suggesting that, yes, it is. And yet, as we read these words, there's, no, there's obviously no clear command given here. And so it's fair to wonder about this and to have a question about this. We know that when we read a narrative that tells us that God did this and then God did that, that doesn't necessarily mean we're supposed to try to copy what he does. We read about Jesus do all sorts of things. And that doesn't give us authorization 
to think that we have to be doing those exact same things. We have to go find all the, the demons and cast them away as Jesus did or some such thing. And so we are to be careful when we read a narrative. We're just told what God did and not automatically read into that, that this is something that we are to do. Nevertheless, I do think this is setting the pattern for man's weekly work and Sabbath rest and not just under the Old Testament. And so I'll give my reasons for that. But maybe just maybe just even before I get into those reasons, this is something that um, that that I personally have been slow to see in Scripture and to think that this is, in fact, true. Uh, slow to acknowledge and admit that I think this is what Scripture teaches us, that this is to set the pattern uh, of, of our weekly work and Sabbath rest. And I, and I think I've been wrong about that. And really just over the last few years becoming more increasingly convinced that this is so. And so in no way, you know, in some ways, some of this, we, we've talked about this when we went through the confession in chapter 22, those, uh, that audio is online if you're interested in more uh, on that. Um, but in no way should any of this, if, if this is even new to you or something, should, should come across as some heavy-handed uh, thing that I'm trying to lay upon you. Um, so with, with, but with that caveat in mind, I'll give some reasons why I think this is setting precedent that man in general is to follow. So, so look at verse 3 again. It says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. So a few reasons why I think this is setting precedent for man to follow. First, I don't think this blessing and sanctifying of this day is just talking about the original seventh day only. That just it was holy, but then every seventh day after that is just whatever. I think that that would be a wrong way to read this. One reason I say that is because of the previous blessings that we see pronounced in chapter one. There are other blessings pronounced in creation on the days of creation. There's a blessing pronounced upon the creatures that were created in day five. We see that in verse 22 to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then we see the blessing pronounced upon man, upon human beings on day six. That's in verse 28, again, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those blessings were not just upon the original created beings, but they are blessings that pass on to the offspring of those creatures. And we saw last week, even after the fall, man and beast were still to continue to multiply and to fulfill uh, and to fill the earth. And so the blessings there were blessings that were to have ongoing consequences beyond just those original created creatures. So I don't think that the blessing here in chapter 2 on the seventh day is just that the original seventh day was blessed, but subsequent ones also were to be considered blessed, that this is indeed setting a pattern. Uh, secondly, another reason I think this is setting precedent other holy days in Scripture were to be set apart from ordinary use by man. They were days that were meant to be kept. They were meant to be honored in a special way by human beings. So feast days in the Old Testament were to be kept holy. 
And they had religious significance for God's people under the Old Covenant. Now, that included holy convocations or assemblies. So it seems consistent and logical then to see this seventh day that it was not made holy simply for God's own sake, but it was made holy for man's sake. And that it was something that was meant to be observed since that's the norm that we find for holy days elsewhere in the Bible. Also, that would mean this is not just intended for Israel, but for mankind in general, since this is a creation ordinance. This is Genesis 2 is long before the nation of Israel was ever established or created. A third reason why I think this is setting precedent. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is explicitly given as part of the rationale for Israel's Sabbath day commandment. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, we read, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For... In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the the fourth commandment that's given here to keep the Sabbath finds its roots and its rationale in the original seventh day. In fact, the end of Exodus 20 verse 11 says that God, that the Sabbath day, was blessed and made holy. And he's not just talking about at Sinai, but when God created. It seems to be saying God's blessing of the seventh day in Genesis 2 was God's blessing of the Sabbath day. And so when we get to Exodus 20 and this commandment is given to Israel, it is simply taking what has already been established at creation and affirming it for the nation of Israel as part of their covenant with God as part of the Ten Commandments. And this rationale given is explaining why the seventh day was chosen. It was chosen because it was made holy by God at creation. The fourth reason why I think this is setting precedent to be followed. There is one very clear reference to keeping a Sabbath day prior to Sinai. So if what I'm saying is true then the Sabbath was in effect, men and women were to keep the seventh day holy from the time of creation onward. And it wasn't just something that was established for the first time in Exodus chapter 20 with the Sinai covenant. And so the case would be helped along and supported if we could find an example of a Sabbath day observance prior to Exodus chapter 20. And that's what we find in Exodus 16. Exodus chapter 16, before they've reached Sinai and this covenant has been struck with God, in verse 22, the people of Israel were to gather manna in the wilderness. You remember this. And they were to gather on six days. And you gather just enough for your day. And then if you have any left over the next day, it's going to be rotten, stinky, and filled with worms. You're just supposed to trust God for every day he'll provide manna. Except there's one exception to that. And that's on the sixth day. And they were not to gather, they were to gather twice as much, and then none on the seventh. And here's what it says. 
He said to them, this is Moses, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside until the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So very clearly here, we have an example of this principle of working six days and then resting on the seventh, even before the Sinai covenant was established. Again, suggesting that it was already in effect and meant to be observed. Why would that be? Because God set that pattern at creation. Working six days and resting on the seventh. So then I think it is right to see that God instituted right at the beginning that man should engage in the work that God has given to man, but then set aside a day of holy rest to the Lord. Now, I know what you're wondering about. <laughs> what about the New Testament? When we get to the New Testament, what do we make of what we find there about these matters? Certainly, things can become a little bit trickier as we consider what we find in the New Testament. We do see very clearly, for example, that the Old Covenant Jewish Sabbaths are no longer in force nor are they to be insisted upon. We see this in places like Colossians 2, verse 16. And a couple of years ago, he preached through that text and talked about that at that time. But what do we find? Well, we do find Christians beginning to gather on the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead. And we find reference to it in Revelation as the Lord's day. And so the question is, is this something that is completely different from the Sabbath? From what we find instituted here in Genesis chapter 2. Some Christians will say, yes, it is completely different. But I don't think that is right. It's not completely different. But I think it is rightly to be understood to be the Christian Sabbath. That is, this creation ordinance of taking one day in seven and keeping it as holy to the Lord, it is that being brought into the new covenant. So, well, what warrants might we have for this, you know, shifting it to the, the, the first day of the week? Well, I think the best way to understand the shift to Sunday in the New Testament and the prominence of the Lord's Day, first of all, it's very clear that that's what we see in the New Testament happening. I'm not even making that argument. I think that's obvious. And even other documents, earliest Christian documents, and even pagans writing about Christians, from the earliest days, Christians were gathering on Sundays in recognition that this was the day that Christ rose from the dead. And so to understand that shift and why that might be permissible or right, 
I think it is helped by a couple of things. First, that the Sabbath commandment is fundamentally, the moral aspect of it is fundamentally that one day in seven is to be kept holy to the Lord. And to understand that from the time of creation until the end of the Old Covenant, that was the seventh day of the week. Second, Christ's work of inaugurating the new creation in his death and then in his resurrection is the ground upon which the day is changed to Sunday. And why we see believers in the new covenant worshiping together and gathering together and marking out and setting apart Sunday. Uh, Here's a comment from Sam Waldron talking about this. And I think this is very helpful and I think it's very true. He says, the new creation Sabbath, Sunday observance, is designated on the same principle as that of the old creation Sabbath. It is the day of God's rest. The first day of the week is the day upon which Christ's labors to atone for the sins of his people came to an end and he entered into his rest in resurrection glory. Christ has finished his work of redemption, and he has entered into his rest at the Father's right hand. And all who believe in Christ enter into that rest as well. And the weekly Lord's Day has this act, Christ's work of redemption, as its main focus, and is to be kept holy while we await and look forward to the consummation of Christ's kingdom and the full experience of eternal rest. And so the focus for us when we gather on the Lord's day is not simply even that God created in six days and rested on the seventh, though that is true. It is not simply because God once told Israel that they were to do that. But we fix our eyes on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in bringing about new creation. And that's why our Services, the Lord from the Lord's Supper, baptism, preaching, we preach Christ and Him crucified. The focus is all around Christ Jesus and what He has done and what He will do in bringing us home to glory. And I think this is what Hebrews is teaching us in those chapters that we read earlier. And verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 bear this out that Christ has finished His labor. Preeminently, he is the one who has done his work and entered into God's rest. And so there remains then for the people of God a Sabbath rest upon which we look again backwards to what Christ has accomplished for us and secured for us in the inaugurated new creation. And we look forward into the fullness and the completion of it. Now, even if you've never thought of Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, I know that many of you still understand it to be a unique and special day in which you prioritize, among other things, being here with the Lord's people and being in church. And I know that if we had tried at some point in our past to say, you know what, we're not going to worship on Sunday, we're going to do Thursdays instead, I think there would have been serious problems for many of you, and you would have been right, by the way, uh, if, if you were to raise such an issue. But I think it is right to see this, this day, the Lord's day, as a Christian Sabbath. 
a day to observe a holy rest. That this is God's design for man to have such a day, even from creation itself, revealed in the fact that he himself rested on the seventh day. And I would encourage you to think of this day in that manner. And when we do, we, we, we often jump, we, we often want to jump straight to a list of things we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Immediately our, our minds go there. And there's obviously validity to thinking through those things. But I would encourage us to begin to view it as a day in which you are released by God himself from many of your other duties and obligations that you do have throughout the rest of the week so that you are freed up to be able to focus more readily upon the things of the Lord. All those things you wish to do and you want to do, but you've got all this stuff going on, all this work, all this stuff that keeps you from being able to spend as much time as you want in the Word and all these sorts of things. I, this is life. I think it's just... A fact, it's acknowledged, God knows it, and he gives us this day to say that's the day you ought not to feel guilty for not doing that load of laundry that's downstairs. That you ought not to feel guilty for not working on your house that day. For checking off all those things that are piling up on the to-do list. And so of all days in the week, perhaps Sunday, the Lord's Day, maybe you approach it this way. You think, of all the days, that will be the day that I will read my Bible. Right? I might get busy and I don't read it as much as I can the other days. I want to read it the other days. I'm going to try to do that. But if I can spend time on any one day, for sure it's going to be that day. Maybe you do the same for, for prayer. I slept in. I rushed. But Sunday, I don't have to have a thousand things going on. Definitely that day will set aside time. Perhaps it's family worship. It's difficult to get in a groove, to remain consistent. But of all the days, for sure, we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, do this and accomplish this. Perhaps Sunday's that day. You know, how many of us think we, we want to read more books about the things of the Lord that will stir our affections for the Lord, help us to understand scriptures better. But again, time, time. When are we going to do this? Maybe Sunday's a day you can set aside a little bit of time to do that very thing. And maybe it's the day of all days that you gather with your family, maybe with others to have fellowship and have dessert, maybe. Just a way of even showing little ones that this is a special day. And it's not at all my desire or intent to run rampant over anyone's conscience in these matters. To say, here's exactly the list of things. We don't even find that in the New Testament. But let us search ourselves. Let us consider how we might better, more intentionally, keep this day as holy to God. To, to deal, even begin to deal more on just in your own heart between you and the Lord. Your approach to this day and where you might cross the line into something that might be inappropriate activity. 
We can also think about ways to better even prepare ourselves in advance so that we perhaps don't have to do as much stuff on this day. I think when we have potluck, if everyone just showed up and we just had bread and we had to make our own sandwiches because everyone was, no one was working, you know, on that day and just wanted to make sure they spent time just, you know, with the Lord and, and so on, that would be great too. And of course, as we consider this day, let us also lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his day. It is the Lord's day. It is a time to be reminded that we are brought into God's rest through faith in Christ Jesus because of his work of redemption that he has accomplished. And again, we enter that now as we trust in him and we look forward to its ultimate fulfillment when we finish our earthly course. How needed it is to dwell upon this daily and as the demands of life limit our time each day, how gracious and good and kind of God to give us this day to aid us in our dwelling upon these truths. God's entrance into his rest and his blessing of the seventh day reveals the end for which man was created, namely to enter into God's eternal rest with him. And it sets the pattern for man's weekly work and Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, we we know that we, we see throughout it, throughout your scriptures, that you are very kind to us. That you continue to sustain the breath that we have in our lungs. That you give us the things that are needed for this life. You are so good in these things. And yet more than that, you have revealed to us redemption in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your commands that are given that are ultimately good and righteous and holy. And that includes a day to keep holy unto you. Father, I pray that you would help us to to delight in that. Father, we know that we are sinful and we we need much help in these things. Father, we pray that you would just continue to grow your people in grace. Give us a, a clearer and clearer understanding of you and of your word. And Father, we thank you so much that you graciously call us into an eternal rest to an eternal inheritance. Father, we do look forward to that with longing. When we are thinking rightly, we know that that will be glorious and wonderful. Father, I pray that that reality would, would encourage us and strengthen us in the work that you have given us. I pray this week in all of the tasks that we will get to tomorrow and all the way through the week, that you would help us to do those in a way that would honor you, that that would be our desire, that 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 would be the way that we approach it. Father, as we seek to 
read and to pray to you and to commune with you throughout the week. We pray that you would bless those times, <clears throat> that you would use your word to encourage your people and strengthen us. We thank you that we have access to your word. And Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day in which we can set it aside to focus upon you, to gather with your people, to have fellowship with one another, and to turn our eyes with greater focus and attention toward you. And so we thank you for your goodness to us in these things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.